My name is Carmen Lopez. Today is November 10th, 2016, and I am here with Johnny Perez for the Our Streets, Our Stories oral history project focused on the justice system. So, Johnny, could you tell us about your experience with the justice system? Yeah, at the age of 21 years old, I was arrested for robbing the first degree and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Uh, I served 13 out of those 15 years and have now been uh, out in society for the last three years. So I'm 37 now. Uh, during my incarceration, I discovered the transformative power of education and where I w was given the tools to really analyze my belief system, my morals, my values, and really look at how and why I applied criminal solutions to poverty and oppression. Um, two days before I was born, my daughter, excuse me, two days before I was arrested, my daughter was born. So when I was released, she was the same age as the amount of days that I spent in prison, which was 13 years. Um, in my experience, I've learned and attribute my change in being able to make better decisions to, to education, you know? Uh, because of education, I came to see opportunities where before I saw nothing but challenges and came to see stepping stones where before I saw nothing but barriers. And suddenly, the impossible became possible, and I came to see a world of opportunity versus a world of mar marginalization and ostracism. Could you have had the same opportunities outside? Yeah, if our society lended itself to that. You know, um, I think that one of the biggest diversion programs to deter people from going to jail is, is white skin. We live in a country where, you know, uh, we live in a very racist country. I think that our criminal justice system is, is a reflection of the racism that goes on in America. And it's not a coincidence that the large proportion of people inside of prison are black and brown people, you know, who are also poor people, who are come from oppressed classes, you know. Um, so. Although I made the choice of breaking the law, the choices that I had to choose from were already limited. You know, and what I mean by that is that, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood with 24-hour liquor stores, you know, where liquor costs less than a gallon of milk. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood with 24-hour porn shops, as if people from low-income neighborhoods had gold laying around to porn at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know? When I was 16 years old, I was not trying to decide if I should go to band camp or karate school or astronaut camp. I was trying to decide which gang I'm going to join. I want to decide, I'm trying to decide how I'm going to run away from the cops. You know, how I'm going to keep from getting shot. How I'm going to keep my hands in plain sight so the cop doesn't think that I'm breaking the law and takes me to jail. You know? And education is, is a human right, not a privilege. And a person should not have to go to to prison to discover a college. You know, um, unfortunately for a lot of people in, in our communities, in, in, in brown and black communities, and low-income communities, they have very little resources, very little opportunities, you know, um, and as a result, end up becoming involved with the criminal justice system. And has your vision of the justice system transformed after you experienced it? Yeah, the vision of my, uh, my vision of the criminal justice system has changed because of my experience. But it's changed in a sense that 
I am now aware of the grotesque injustices that go on behind those barbed wire fences. You know, before my vision of prison was fed by the media, and I thought that only the worst of the worst are in prison and that we need prison. And, you know, after going through that experience, I can, I, that view has changed in the sense that, you know, behind those walls, I have met some of the most compassionate, most compelling people, you know, who made some bad decisions, you know? And yeah, I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that I've met who are very intelligent, who are self-taught, who, you know, you look inside of their cells and they're filled with nothing but books and snicker bars, you know, who are self-taught scholars, you know? Uh, a good friend of mine, Derek Anderson, who actually passed away two years after he was released, after completing 32 years, you know, a uh, very smart individual, you know, he, he died from having high blood pressure um, because of the diet in prison. Um, you know, and here's a person who, you know, not only decided to take their time to, to help others, but also to, to better himself, you know, to pursue education, to, to acquire an education, you know. Um, I work with people now who have been incarcerated, but who have uh, an extraordinary put amount of potential to become great, you know. Um, I'll tell you, a friend of mine, Ronald Day, you know, he works for the Fortune Society now, and he was released, you know, at 34 years old with just a GD, you know, and now soon, you know, uh, he's not only defended his dissertation, but he'll be a doctor one day, you know. Um, but he discovered the transformative power of education while he was incarcerated. You know, it had been the first time in his life that he had actually been exposed to education and had been able to engage education, you know. And when I look at his life, when I look at my life and the life of others, you know, I imagine a world where we invest in people and not prisons and what can happen from that. Mm -hmm. And can you share your journey from getting out of prison to where you are right now? Yeah, so getting out of prison after 13 years was not the most easiest thing. You know, I spent my entire adult life in prison from the age of 21 to 34. One of the hardest things that was uh, for me to adjust to were technology, you know, touch screens and the internet and how heavily reliant society has become on technology and the internet. Um, you know, other challenges that I had were just reintegrating into my own family. You know, my, my brothers were 14 and 15 when I came, when I was initially incarcerated. And, you know, I returned back into society, they were well into late 30s, you know? Um, and just learning how to engage my family members as adults and not as like big brother, little brother, you know? Of being able to engage women, the opposite sex, you know? In prison, you can't talk to female correction officers. That can get you a few broken ribs. You know, and to just be in society where I'm able now to have a relationship with a woman, you know, uh, to say hi and not worry about being thrown in solitary confinement because of it. You know, that took some adjusting. And then the, the last piece, you know, is learning how to be a father. You know, my little girl, she was 13 years old when I was released, you know, which was my, the entire time that I was incarcerated, you know, and just learning how to be a father to a little girl, 
no? Um, not only does every boy needs their mother, but every girl needs their father too, you know? And really reconciling our relationship after me being away for so long, how, how do I do that? To this day, it's still not as good as it could be, you know? Um, but I'm slowly chipping at it. You know, I understand her anger. I understand her source of frustration. I understand her feelings of abandonment, you know, um, and just trying to kind of mend the pieces back, you know. Uh, so in addition to navigating all of that, I also had this calling for letting people know, making them aware of these injustices behind those walls, you know, and I decided to dedicate my life to advocacy and to do that, you know. Um, but it wasn't just as easy as getting employed the next day after jail, you know. I walked at least a good six months looking for work. There were times when I was told I was too qualified, and there were times when I was told to just settle for a job at McDonald's, which my experience in level of education um, would have been highly underutilized in a position like that, you know. And finally, you know, I thought about who better than... Who better to help someone reintegrate into society? Who better than to advocate against inhumane policies than someone who themselves have been exposed to these ideologies and policies and had to come back into society? And then I came here to the Urban Justice Center, and after explaining that, you know, they hired me. You know, and I've been here now for two and a half years doing uh, reentry advocacy. Can you talk about your experience of education in prison? Yeah, it was really eye-opening. Um, you know, on one side you have people who don't advocate for people in jail to, to receive uh, access to higher education. You know, they believe that criminals are, are born and not made. You know, they think that if you treat someone, if you give somebody computer skills who's been convicted of burglary, and now what you have is a computer hacker, you know, when the opposite is actually true. You know, you teach somebody computer skills, you give people the tools to become a software engineer or IT specialist or, you know, to have meaningful work where they are not only able to earn a living wage and provide for their family, but where they feel valued too, you know. And education not only gave me the tools to not have to apply criminal solutions to poverty and oppression, but also to see you know, the potential within myself. You know, like, yes, Johnny, you, you can be a lawyer if you want. You can be a doctor. You can become an engineer if you want. You're not doomed to a life of, you know, criminal behavior. You're not doomed to a life of poverty. You're not doomed to a life of constant inequality and oppression. You know, and you too can help change the system. So, you know, education for me made me see or helped me see things that A, I never knew existed, um, and this also fueled my need to have more education because I realized how much I didn't know, how much I need to know, um, and that's why t to this day I'm still in school, you know. Um, is there anything that you would tell a young kid in that was in or is right now in the same situation that you were as a young kid? Yeah, it's all an illusion. You know, the criminal lifestyle have you believe that you can get rich off the streets, that you can get rich from selling drugs, that, you know. Um, and I get it. You know, we live in a society that is highly individualistic, who equates money with success, you know. 
And I would argue, and I would tell that young 16-year-old, or I would tell my own 16-year-old self, you know, that the system is built in such a way in which you are more likely to go to prison and be criminalized. And once you are, the perpetual consequences of having a criminal record are lifelong. Whether you do one year in jail, or you do 15 years in jail, you will pay for it for the rest of your life. And that society is built in such a way in which you will be judged for the worst, darkest part of your life. You know, I would encourage my 16-year-old self to, uh, to not only, you know, seek out education, you know, um, but also to direct that energy and redirect the energy from breaking the law to creating a more fair and balanced system. We need the voices of young people. We need the voices of people who have been affected by the system to help change the system for not only ourselves, but also generations to come. And how do you ambition a more fair justice system? <laughs> one that reflects our values. You know, on, on one side, we live in a country that values justice and equality, you know, that values prosperity and social mobility. But on the other hand, our policies do not reflect that. You know, we have, you know, we're asking about criminal records on college applications, on housing applications, on employment applications. You know, um, we are we stereotype people who are in prison. We dehumanize them by calling them inmates and ex-convicts and jailbirds, you know? A more just system not only protects and upholds the dignity and humanity of the people who have been affected by the system, um, but also has policies, rules, and regulations which creates a more inclusive society by acknowledging and recognizing that 95% of the people who are in prison are returning back into our society and are people just like us. Mm -hmm. And what are the ways that common people can contribute to make a change? One is by humanizing the people in the system. You know, so language is very powerful, you know, uh, refer to people as people, not as ex-convicts and inmates and, you know, and whatever label the media decides to use that week. You know, when we see people as people, we treat people as people, you know. Second, people can help by, by, uh, by practicing their, their American right and their civilian right to engage their, their, their policymakers. You know, you have policymakers right now who are being paid to say that you want a larger jail system, that you want people in solitary, that you don't want people to be educated, even when this is not what came out of your mouth. You know, uh, hold your legislators accountable. You know, we vote with our tax dollars. You know, our government works for us. We don't work for them, they work for us. You know, and we need to exercise that right and say, you know, we want policies that reflect the humanity of the people held inside of these human cages, you know? Um, so people should look at their language, engage their policymakers, and then lastly, you know, um, to engage people in their own social circles who may not be policymakers, who are not as aware of the system, you know, as they may be, you know. So part of the responsibility is not only educate yourself on the system, but also educate the people around you, and then ask them to also do the same things that I'm asking now, you know? Because policies can't shift until the culture shifts. And we live in a 
punishing culture. And I think that because of the recent election, that is only going to be perpetuated if people don't take a stand. Do you see any hope? Or how do you envision something more hopeful? Do you see like something is changing? Within, I, even within this convoluted yeah. times? My, my hope, I see, I see hope in... I see hope in the moral fabric of our society. I think that generally people want to do good. You know, generally people do make good decisions. You know, um, I do believe that we are in a place in our country of unprecedented, unprecedented forward movement as it relates to criminal justice. You know, uh, Pope Francis, uh, you know, watched the feet of people who are currently incarcerated. He you know, uh, chastised solitary confinement. Um, our president, who will be leaving in January, you know, has pardoned a, you know, a record-breaking number of people, you know, from incarceration, has pushed policies forward that have been really progressive and has helped us in a lot of different ways. And we've seen more changes in the system in the last three years than ever, you know. And my hope is that we can capitalize off that momentum, that we will continue that momentum, that we will continue engaging the legislators who helped move that forward, you know, into, into this next administration, you know, uh, because having a Republican House and Senate, you know, and a White House, you know, the scary part is that it would reverse a lot of the progress that we've seen in the last three years. You know, but but my hope is that that will not happen, and I like to optimistic, cautiously, optimistically <laughs> uh, believe that we can continue this move, this work. You know, especially for the large proportion of black and brown people in, in, in this country. You know, and I say black and brown, and without saying Muslim or undocumented people who come from other countries whether it's from Mexico or from Syria, you know? And, like, I don't know, I just, you know, I hurt a lot of people in my life, you know? You know, I've robbed people, I've sold drugs, I've, you know, contributed to a lot of the things that are wrong with our society, you know? And in prison, I think that I... I kind of uncovered the good in me, so to speak, you know, even to the point where when I think back to when I was 21, or I should say between the age of 16 and 21, you know, um, I can't even believe that I was the kind of person who did some of the things that I did. You know, it felt like I was like a completely different person, you know, but I also think that because of that, because of such a huge extreme, is that now I'm in, I'm in a place where I can ask the question about how could people do that, but I can ask that question with a side of me that can kind of understand some of the ideologies, you know? But the one thing that is hard for me to understand is, is the, the undercurrent of racist, classes, um, and just like pure hatred, you know, that is like underlying in this country, like 
you know, that people are silently silent about it, that people who smile with you and laugh with you and have coffee with you secretly deep down hate you too, you know? And for me, I think that's the scariest part. That's the scariest part where a person who obviously hates, and I'm talking about like a deep-seated hate for people, not because of what they've done, but because of who they are. You can't change who a person is. You know, if a person is uh, lesbian, gay, queer, like that's who they are. You know what I'm saying? If a person is Muslim, that's who they are. So being Muslim is not something that you do, it's something that you are. So for you to say that we should treat these people a certain way and not let them in the country, kick them out, send them to jail, you know, just because of who they are, and for people to vote somebody like that in, that's, that's really scary, you know? And, and this is coming from a person that's a part of those, like, been labeled. I've been labeled my whole life, you know? And that, for me, is the scariest part. Because in prison, I, learned, I read about the Holocaust, you know, and how millions and millions of Jews can, could, like, a country can come to a point where they literally legalize the extermination of a large class of people, not because of what they did, but again, because of who they are. And you're Jewish, that's who you are. You know, you don't do Jewish, you are Jewish, you know? And, and to hear some of that same kind of conversation now in this country that's supposed to be free and all this other good shit that we like to say, and for people to elect this person, with a large majority, like, not the, by the popular vote, but by the people in power who say, we want this person in power. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. Who also have access to nuclear weapons, you know, who has come out and said some very distasteful thing about women, about African-Americans, about Muslims, about people from the LGBTQ community, about damn near anybody who's not a white male. I don't think he's ever said anything good. Like, if you're not a white male, that's the only class of people who he hasn't said nothing bad about. Do you think that kind of people, um, that uh, demographic, do you think they feel somehow repressed right now? Like, I think that the same way that we, that people might be reacting to Trump are some of the same ways that those same people who voted for Trump reacted to Obama getting elected. You know, and I think that, I think that w when you start to think this is my country and you start to feel possessive about it and feel threatened by your position within that country, you'll do anything to uphold policies that will keep you in your position in society. And no one in this world has more privilege than a white male, you know? And if you have wealth, if you're a white wealthy male, then you, by default, whether you're in office or not, you have so much power in this country. And that is a big contrast to a black, female who has two strikes against her. She's black and she's female, you know? And 
I think that once a white male feels threatened by his privilege, his feel threatened that his privilege is in jeopardy, his position in society is threatened, you know? And somebody like Donald Trump comes along, who's also a white male with a lot of privilege and who promises you that we're gonna make America great again, then you're gonna vote for him. And even so much that even white women who like voted for this person after he like said what he think, like what he says about women is obviously he doesn't he talks down on women, but also who has said that a woman should go to jail if she has an abortion. Like, yeah, he's pro-life. Not only is he pro-life, but he's also willing to put people in prison because of it, which is deep, you know? And a large number of white women voted for him, but not black women, not the minorities, you know? And I don't know, it's, it's, very, it's very scary, you know? And when I go online, now what's happening is that a lot of people who were undercover racist or shy racist or didn't feel comfortable saying certain things only amongst themselves or being more public about it, you know? Like people calling into the radio stations and, you know, and saying things that they would have never said out loud. They would have thought it or maybe said it amongst other people who are also racist and classes and bigots, you know? Um, but now it's more like I'm letting you know that I don't like you too. Like, I let my friends know, but I'm telling you to your face that I think you don't like you or whatever, that you shouldn't be in this country or whatever. When in reality, we're all immigrants. Last time I checked, except the Native Americans, and that's why we say Native Americans, because they were here first. And look at what's happening in Standing Rock right now. You say, yeah, you're Native, but we also, we're also bullies. America, America is the biggest bully in history. And Donald Trump represents, represents that. You know, we'll take what we want. You know, and in the United States, we do it to other countries. But if a guy like me does it, he goes to jail. I can't take what I want. Go to jail. I already did go to jail for that. <laughs> you know, but if you, but if you are a nation and you want oil or want, we want your land, we'll take it. You know, we'll say this belongs to you until we need it. You know, and that's what's happening with, with that with that land. Like these are sacred burial grounds. Oh, we're gonna put a pipe through here. Like no. Like no, that's wrong. Do you think you sometimes know? we need to go to the extremes? Like I tell you to learn. I tell you, um to learn in the No, you're right. I think and I tell you I I'm all for peace, peaceful protest and democracy, you know. But when I look at the news and I see what, like people in Oakland, Michigan, California, New York protesting, you know, I, I can understand why. And, and in my own crazy way, I can understand in the sense that, that sometimes something traumatic needs to happen for people to get it. And this in no way is me trying to justify any adverse behavior. How, like, and I say that also knowing that Sometimes a near-death experience makes somebody change their ways. You know, um, I know drunk drivers who stopped drinking because they almost died. You know, I know people who have been diagnosed with lung cancer who live some of the healthiest lives now 
who have been or who have tested HIV positive who now are some of the most healthiest people in the world. And you have to ask them, would you have be that healthy if you wasn't diagnosed? And that's not, that might not even be the right question to ask, you know? Um, but I think about, like, when I think about revolutions and civil right movements, you know, like a lot of the things that have pushed the change are, the, are like the things that are considered drastic and radical. Whether it was the Montgomery boy, uh, 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 Montgomery bus, uh, bus boycott, you know, back in the civil rights era, where it was the you know marching, you know, mar all the things you know Martin Luther King did, or or the other extreme where Malcolm X said, <laughs> like you know, by any means necessary, you know, um, Karl Marx back then he said, you know, one day the proletariat will overcome you know the bourgeoisie until they get tired, you know. Um, there's a painting on the wall here by uh, Molly Crabapple, which I'll show you on the way out, that says the famous quote, one day the poor will have nothing to eat but the rich, you know? And until the people who are powerless get tired of the way that the powerful have been doing things, and it, then sometimes you do need a revolution. You know, look at Egypt. People overthrow governments when their government is no longer representing them, you know? And that's a scary place to be at. Uncertainty is, is very scary, especially when we've come accustomed to the freedom that America brings. America, let me tell you something. I was born in Cuba, you know? Um, I came here when I was one. My mother brought me into this country in 1979. Excuse me, 1980, I was born in 79. And I've seen a lot of, I've seen, now, I mean, after prison now, I've seen a lot of wealth. I've been exposed to a lot of wealth now since I've been out. I've, like, seen the way that millionaires live. You know, I met a guy who made $180 million two years ago. And it's, like, rich beyond measure. Like, I've never met somebody with that much money, you know? Um, but I've also seen the other side. I've seen poverty. I've seen the cockroaches and rats and uh, being poor. I've, I've lived that, you know, and seen that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm considered middle class now <laughs> because of my salary, you know. So I've seen both sides, you know, and I still think, I think that America is a really great country. I'll tell you that. You know, I think that it's very great, you know. But I say that to say that it can be a whole lot better. America has so much untapped potential. And a lot of the things that we argue about, if it was just eliminated from the equation, we could do so much more if there wasn't racism, if there wasn't inequality, if there wasn't power struggles, if there wasn't this, if, if educational institutions didn't hold the keys to social mobility. But isn't the country based on racism or born? Yeah, yeah. But, and here's the thing, and just because it started one way doesn't mean, doesn't mean that it should continue or end that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I talk to policymakers who say, when I ask, why, why are we doing this? Why, are we ha why do we have this policy? And the, their only answer is, because it's the way that we've been doing it. That's not, an, that's not a reason. Because you, we, we could have been doing it wrong. What if we're doing it wrong? We're gonna keep doing it just because we've been doing it? No, it's time for change. It's time to, to 
no longer depend on the foundations that this country was built on. And it was built on inequality, oppression, and racism. And we have to let, we have to, we have to move on from that. And we have it, we have it. You know, we, we, we have it. And we've created, we've created these systems of oppression that were intentionally created to marginalize a subset of the American population, specifically anyone who's not white. And I like to say black and brown, but I'm also going to say, I'm just going to say anyone who is not white, Caucasian in this country are affected. Can you give an example, like a specific example? Yeah, a specific example. Let's look at, let's look at a simple policy like having the box that asks about criminal records on college applications. Now, on the surface, oh, it's just, you know, you should know like, who's inside the, 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 you know, who should have access, who, who's in the college and who's not, you know? Um, but the bigger, the bigger picture is more than, of course, you know, we should be given access to, education is a human right, not a privilege. <coughs> Excuse me. Education is a human right, not a privilege. So when we say, hey, you know, when we create challenges for people to access higher education, specifically on the criminal record, when we already have policies that affect people unequally when it comes to the system, you know, um, the larger picture is that when you look at what the roles of higher education institutions are, you know, it, institutions are the gatekeepers to prosperity in this country. You know, if you have a college degree, a person with a college degree makes over $1 million on average more than a person with just a, with just a high school diploma. You know, a person who has a PhD or MSW is at a less, likely, uh, a less likelihood to go to prison, to go to jail. You know, as your level of education increases, you know, the likelihood of you going to prison or recidivizing decreases, you know? And not only that, it goes, to show, it goes to say that, you know, the more education you have, the more money you're going to make, the better the opportunities you're going to get. But when educational institutions say, hey, we don't want you here, we're, not, we're saying more than just we don't want to educate you. We're also saying that we don't, want to, we, we don't want you to have access to all of these other things that education brings and people with education benefit from. You know what I'm saying? So we have policies that only serve only just to marginalize people, just to marginalize people. You know, and I'm speaking specifically to people in criminal records because that's where my work focuses on. You know, but like look at housing. Not only is there no housing, but when I applied for uh, affordable part, they asked me whether do you have a criminal record? What is your credit score like? And for somebody that's been in jail for 13 years, they don't have credit. <laughs> you can take somebody that's been in jail for 20, 30 years, they don't have credit. You know, and they have a criminal record. So you, ha you don't have credit. You have a criminal record, you know, um, and you have employment agencies asking you, do you have a criminal record, you know? Uh, and, and let's not even talk about other policies like the sex offender registry. If you have a sex offense in, in this country, you know, you can forget about it. Your life, your life is no longer ever going to be the same, ever, 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 like ever. You know, and that is the segment of the of the criminal justice formerly incarcerated population that is so neglected and so misunderstood, you know, that the public doesn't even want to talk about it. 
doesn't even want to talk about it. Sex offenses, oh God, no. Let's work with the juveniles who have been convicted of drugs. We don't want to work with people who've been convicted of sex offenses. We don't want to work with violent people. You know, this is division between nonviolent and violent. Nonviolent, you should get all the all the reform you want. But violence, oh no, no, no. Murder, oh no, we don't no, we, we we need to keep you in jail. You know? Without looking at the statistics, without looking at the numbers, you know, and, and the numbers say that people who have been convicted of homicide or murder don't reoffend. There's not a lot of serial killers in the world. <laughs> you know, and the movies that have you thinking that everybody in jail is a serial killer. No, absolutely not. I met a person doing 18 years to life because they stole a car. 18, 18 years to life, you know? And when I left, he had like 23 years of that, 23 years in. And all he does is spend all day in his cell trying to learn about the law, to find some loophole that will open up the keys to his cell to set him free. You know, and he's good with the law. He can help everybody else get out of jail, but he can't help himself. You know, and it's it's really disturbing. It's hard. It's disturbing. And for me, I've never looked at the world the same again. I can't. How can you look at the world the same after 13 years in prison? Not only that, but once I started doing this work and I actually learned about the policies and I'm often in rooms with people who are writing the policies and what their thinking is, oh my God, it's scary. It's like, how is this person in power? How, were you, how are you trusted with the lives of so many people? You know, and... But it's great that you get to be there. Like, yeah, yeah, and, and part of that back challenge is that Sometimes I'm a part of the conversation, and sometimes I'm not, even when I'm at the table. So it's like, yeah, yeah, we hear you. What do you have to say? And I'm saying it like, and that person, this person who might have a PhD can say the same exact thing that Johnny said, who doesn't have a PhD, and they'll listen to him. I've seen that, like, like literally. I've said, I just said that. Why, well, how is that different from what I just told you? And I've actually said that in the meetings. You know, and sometimes I make people uncomfortable. That's okay, because that's, that's what I'm there. I'm here to talk about what people don't want to talk about, that people know about but just want to ignore, hoping that it goes away. Well, no, it's not going to go away. We can't treat people like this, you know? And um, I don't know. That's, I think that's why I got a job, but I got to look right now. My job next year, uh, I don't know what that looks like. I got to find another job. Because the thing about the nonprofit world is that you have to keep raising money. So my position, it was a three-year position, and it runs out in August. So I got to find money to continue doing the work or just apply for someone, apply for a different job, you know? So that's the, that's the tricky part, you know, so. But no, it, you're right, it is good to be in those spaces. You know, I'm on a lot of different boards, you know, the Adolescent Advisory Board of Rikers Island, I'm on a bar association, I'm not a lawyer. I'll tell you something, sometimes I look around the room and I'm like, how'd I get in here? <laughs> and all these people are lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, you know? And sometimes I look around, I'm like, I know I'm the only person in here who wears a do-rag to go to sleep, <laughs> you know, because I might be the only black person in the room. 
or I might be the only black Hispanic person in the room, you know, and I have to represent all of the people who are not in the room because I have a responsibility to the people that I represent and not come in here and start to say, oh, yes, just because I want to get along with everybody. No, I don't need to get along with you. This is what needs to happen, you know? And sometimes I'm invited back, sometimes I'm not. You know, I don't care, you know? But I always speak the truth. Always, always, always. And after a lot of meetings, sometimes when we leave, I might have people um, say, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I was thinking the same thing. And I, that pisses me off. Because I'm like, so why didn't you say that inside the, inside the meeting? I could have used your support. When I'm the only person saying something, and people are looking at John like he's crazy, and you're thinking what I'm saying, and you didn't say nothing, how are we ever going to have change? What are you doing this for, a paycheck? Because I can go get a job to just make money. I can start a business for profit, you know? But we don't, we don't come, we're not here to make, like, nobody doesn't work to try to get rich, you know? I'm not getting rich. I'm damn sure not getting rich. I just asked for a raise the other day. Like, we're here to make change, you know? But people, people in power like to stay in power. And another thing that I noticed in two and a half years of doing this work is that people don't like to challenge power, neither. People are scared of power, you know? Because I've been in rooms where the most powerful person in the room might sit over there and they'll say something that's completely illogical. Like, I'll look around the room, like, did this person just say that? And nobody's saying nothing. People on their phone, they're writing. Nobody wants to be the first one. And I'm like, excuse me, not for nothing, but that doesn't make sense to me. You know, and I'm new here. I always say that. I'm new here. And I know y'all have been doing this work for a long time. But I just can't understand why we would create a policy that allows correction officers to do whatever they want, you know? And then that whole side might be nothing but correction officers, you know? And then this side might be like, oh, like you know? Oh, it's not that they're, I'm like, well, if you, you know, look at the language and all this other stuff, you know? And then they'll let me go on a little bit. And then that's it, then it's like, okay, does anyone else have anything else to say? You know, and then, okay, thank you for coming. We'll see you, everybody, next month. And yeah, I said what I said, but it's down in the minutes, but that's it. Now when we walk out, so glad you said that. I was thinking the same thing. So why didn't you say that? That's what we're here for. We're creating, and this is part of the Adolescent Advisory Board on Rikers, but we're creating the policies that's going to affect everybody in that. The, the correction officers and the people that are there detained, who are not even guilty yet. This is Rikers Island, they're not even guilty. They're waiting to go to trial. But we're treating them like they're guilty. We're treating them like they're not, like, like these could be our kids. These are 16 and 17 year olds. You're talking about creating policies, like one policy said um, uh, they have to show verbal compliance in order to get out of solitary. I'm like, verbal compliance, what does that look like? Well, the correction officer has to, has to is, decides whether this person is being verbally compliant or not. So I'm like, what does verbal compliance look like? Because you're asking a 16-year-old, what, to be quiet, to agree with whatever's going on? What if he doesn't agree? 
What do you mean? What does verbal compliant mean in the, in the, in the context of this right here? Because you're saying that he can't come out of his cell until the question officers determine that he's verbally compliant, but you don't have any criteria on how this officer should make that determination. You don't have anything that, what, to help this person understand whether they're being verbally compliant or not, or how, does that, how, how is that satisfied? So, and this is what I'm saying, like, just like the way I said I'm saying it, and it's like, well, you know, we hire people who have good judges of character. I said, like, not for nothing, but I just read a story yesterday that a question officer got arrested for smuggling contraband inside of the jail. So when you talk about judgment, like, I don't, like you know, we have to have accountability, checks and balances. We just can't let people do whatever they want. You know, and I'm sorry, but to, to, to the, allow a correction officer to decide whether a 16-year-old inside of a cell that's no bigger than the bathroom to determine whether this person being verbally compliant or not, that's, 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 way, too, that's way too loose. Just my opinion. I don't know how many other people, I don't know how other people feel about that. Because I say that to like, give people, you know, I don't know how other people feel about that. Anybody else have anything to say about this? Okay, moving on. Next thing. And I'm like, man, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> you know? But it's about it. Just got to keep pushing, hoping, you know, just change the minds of people. You know? Yeah, so. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, not a problem.